we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Hello, everybody. This is Ron Clasco, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dan Lundy and Jessica Denisi. We are all with the Clasco EB5 team, and we're pleased to present the first of a three-part series on our subject of problems with EB5 projects and regional centers. Uh, today, the first part is problems with projects. Our second part of the series will be uh, problems that uh, regional centers encounter. And our third part will be litigation options to deal with these types of problems. The overview of this is that uh, we're in a time where the problems with the pandemic, the problems with the economy, um, and just general uh, USCIS adjudication delays and some fraudulent activity has resulted in many projects and many regional centers encountering a lot of problems that seriously impact investors. Uh, we are going to focus today on the types of problems encountered by projects, um, specifically dealing with delays in projects, especially during these times, uh, dealing with changes in the project or the business plan of the project, which the longer these projects have to go on because of quota backlogs and delays, the more chances that there'll be changes. Uh, we're going to be dealing with job shortages, which again are very much exacerbated uh, during these COVID times. And we're going to be dealing with fraudulent projects and diverted money. So to start us off, uh, Jess, talk to us first about the problems created when projects are delayed compared to what the plan was. So the big issue when a project is changed or delayed is whether or not um, the change or the delay um, is a material change uh, for USCIS's purposes. Um, material change is not a term that USCIS is clearly defined anywhere. Um, in general, the services said uh, it's material if the change would have a natural tendency to impact the adjudicator's decision, and it can't render a petition that was not approvable at filing approvable. Um, a, a material change can impact an investor's immigration goals depending on um, where the, the investor is in the immigration process uh, at the time of the material change. Um, if the investor's I-526 is pending or the visa application is pending, um, so before the investor becomes a conditional permanent resident, um, a material change could lead um, to the denial of the 526 or a revocation of an already approved 526. Um, once the investor becomes a conditional permanent resident, um, you know, a material change isn't necessarily fatal and an investor can go on um, to remove conditions on permanent residents, uh, assuming that the other requirements are met. USCIS often Googles projects now when adjudicating, um, so they'll find public source information or articles about the project and then draw the conclusion um, 
correctly or incorrectly that the project is delayed or where the project has changed in some manner. If there has been a delay or if there is a change to the project, we recommend and we think it's helpful for regional centers or projects um, to provide uh, additional documents to the investors to create an inner filing template for its investors so that they can provide updated documents to USCIS, um, letting them know what's going on with the project so that there's a complete record um, and the business plan is that USCIS is adjudicating is, is complete. However, in the event that there is an RFE, when we have a delay, we submit evidence on uh, progress on the project in the face of the delay. Um, and a new timeline and evidence of how a change um, has not impacted the approvability of the project or its job creation or other factors that are you know, actually relevant to whether or not a petition can be approved. Yes, there really, there really is a lot of time to get these projects completed, even if the project uh, expected to be completed in a year and because of COVID and weather and other things, it takes years and years and years. In the end, you don't have to really prove out the jobs for a whole lot of years, right? If um, right. Uh, the, I guess the immigration service position, which they've kind of created, is that when you file the 526, you have to show the jobs will be created within two and a half years after the approval. Well, now a lot of times it takes them three years to approve. So right off the bat, that's kind of five and a half years. Um, and then you really don't have to prove out the jobs uh, until after the uh, until the IE29 process, and right. so that gives you even more time. So after the 526 is approved, uh, depending on quota backlogs, there may be longer waits before they're conditional residents. Then two years to file the 829. So the bottom line is, even if they said they were hoping to do everything within a year, it could be that they have seven, eight, or nine years, right? Yeah, before they have to prove anything. So I guess in, in that way, there's some advantages to the to the quota backlogs and the adjudication delays if there are if the project is slow getting off the ground. Uh, I, I want to talk uh, about the issue of job shortages, and this has it's an issue both with respect to regional centers, but even more so, uh, I think, in our experience, with respect to direct EB5 projects and you know, there are many direct EB-5 projects, for example, uh, that involve uh, restaurants, let's say. And uh, needless to say, during, during COVID, restaurants have closed, jobs either were lost or haven't been created, businesses have gone bankrupt, and now there's no jobs. And the question is, well, what are the strategies, is all hope lost, uh, if, there, if we get ready to do the 829 and there's not 10 jobs? Uh, and the answer is there's actually a lot of flexibility and a lot of strategies and a lot of things we can do. So the first thing that we need to know is that the issue is not how many jobs there are now, whatever now is, when we're filing the 829 or whatever. The issue is whether the jobs ever were created. So for example, if pre-COVID um, there were 15 jobs and today there are five, that's a winner because the, at least 10 jobs were, in the past tense, created, even if they don't exist now. So that can even apply to a project that's totally bankrupt, because if, if, the, if it had 15 jobs before the bankruptcy, 
the jobs were created. Uh, even if you get to the 829 stage, and there never has been 10 jobs, and there are 10 jobs now, uh, you still have under the regulations a reasonable time after the I-829 adjudication to produce, to show that the jobs will be created. So think of that. Some of these I-829 adjudications are taking four and five years. And if you, if you can show that there will be 10 jobs um, uh, in a, within a reasonable time, let's say that's a year, after the four or five years it takes USCIS to adjudicate, again, there's, there's a lot of room to deal with that. You hate to be in those situations because you have issues that uh, USCIS can challenge you, uh, but you also have uh, a lot of strategies and a lot of law on your side when you're, when you're dealing with those cases. Dan, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, so, Ron, you raise an important point that the jobs need to be created within a year of the adjudication of the petition. But USCIS policy currently is that the jobs need a reasonable time is one year from the expiration of the two-year conditional residence period. Uh, so there may, in fact, be a difference between the regulatory standard and the current USCIS policy, which, as we know, isn't all that uncommon. Yeah, Dan, that's a really good point. And it's just one of so many examples uh, that uh, we use both for our advocacy when we're dealing with RFEs and NOIDs, and if necessary, we use when we go to federal court of where there's tensions and often just flat out differences between USCIS policy and what the language of the law is. So here's an example where the regulation specifically says you have a reasonable time after 829 adjudication to create the jobs and their published processing times say they're taking what four to six years to adjudicate so under the plain language of the reg you have lots of time even though that may not be their policy and that's something uh, I guess that takes some good lawyering to deal with uh, let me raise a couple of other points that we've talked about um, let's go back and, and uh, uh, look at the material change issue so one question is, uh, Jess, maybe you want to deal with this, which is, well, what constitutes a material change? In other words, um, if there is a change in the uh, general partner of the, of the NCE, is that a material change? This comes up in changes in regional centers. Uh, you know, what if we've, you know, decided because of COVID to somewhat modify our business plan? How do we decide what is and what isn't the material change? Well, and unfortunately, we don't get to decide. Um, but something like the change in the general partner um, really shouldn't be considered material because that has nothing to do with whether or not the investor has met the requirements of the program or whether or not the petition is approvable. Um, the change in the regional center, though, is unfortunately clearer um, whether or not it should be a material change, USCIS has now said in the policy manual that the substitution or the termination of a regional center is a material change. Um, so an investor that has that um, that happen to them, their, to their regional center change or be terminated before becoming a conditional resident um, could be denied um, or revoked um, at, at that point. Um, yeah, we'll talk more about that in, in part two. Um, and 
I agree that's their policy, but I also believe that their policy is wrong under the law, and that's for discussion in, in, in part two. Um, what if you have a situation, the, the whole concept of material change, I think, started with matter of Izumi, uh, and the concept that you can't have, if you have a, 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 a petition that's not approvable when filed, you can't make a material change to make it approvable later on. Well, what if the project was completely approvable when filed, and now you're making a substantial change, and it's still approvable? Um, is should that be something that the uh, the uh, uh, penalties of material change uh, comes into play with? So I certainly don't think so, um, and that's definitely an argument that, that we make when faced with a substantial change in a project. So. In order for it to be a material change, it has to be material to something. And that material something has to be an eligibility requirement because if it wouldn't materially alter an eligibility requirement, then it can't be a material change. It's a change that's not going to affect the outcome. You know, we do understand that they have an interest in making sure that when you file a business plan, you have some intent of carrying it out. However, if the, if the change you know, for instance, if you don't raise enough money and you scale back the project to make it smaller, is that a material change? No. As long as there are enough job creation jobs going to be created for every single investor that files, it shouldn't be a material change. Correspondingly, if the project budget increases and you raise more money, that shouldn't be a material change either as long as there are still enough jobs for all of the investors. Yep, that, that's certainly a good point. Dan, um Unfortunately, uh, we have seen in the EB-5 program many examples of issues where either principals within the, the project, the NCE, the regional center, um, have diverted money uh, or with it, where there's been fraudulent activity. Uh, we'll be talking about some of this in the third part of the series when we deal with litigation, uh, and, and we've been involved in litigating a number of these things. Um, but Dan, what, what are the issues arise uh, that arise when we are dealing with fraudulent projects or diverted money? These are some of the most difficult cases, and as we've been saying, your your chances of success depend a little bit on whether you've gotten your conditional green card or not. Because you know, once you have and you're not subject to material change, you have a little bit more flexibility. So there are a couple of you know there are a couple types of diversion of money. The, the classic type is when, you know, you invest money into a new commercial enterprise and somebody takes it and goes and buys a boat or a house or, you know, just walks off with your money. Um, those situations are very, very difficult. It's hard to get that back on track, but it's not necessarily impossible. Um, sometimes either, you know, if the money is recovered or it end, eventually ends up getting where it's supposed to be, you might have a, a chance. Um, if you invest more money to make up for it, you might have a chance. But those are difficult cases. Um, there are less clear-cut cases where money is commingled but eventually used on a project. Um, we have some arguments there that as long as it, you know, money gets ultimately where it was supposed to go, we may be able to correct along the way um, how it got there, and we may still be able to argue that, well, you know, even if it went someplace in between temporarily, it still invested in the business, completed the business plan, and created the jobs. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, this, this is relatively new area. USCIS has not adjudicated a whole lot of cases like this. Um, they've taken a very hard tack. Sometimes these require litigation. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, motions to reopen. Um, there's generally a pretty extended process. Uh, but the important thing is, is not to lose hope and not to give up because there may be, if, you know, some way of, of continuing the green card process. Uh, specifically, good news is that there's uh, proposed legislation that would actually provide relief for investors who, you know, through no fault of their own, got involved with the project and, and the money didn't go where it was supposed to. Bottom line, so the standard for the USCIS is that the money is, 100% of the money is supposed to be deployed to the entity most closely responsible for the job creation. Now, we can get there, say, you know, sometimes the money is deployed, the, the job creating enterprise asks the new commercial enterprise to pay off a loan on its behalf or pay a contractor. These cases, they've had some scrutiny from USCIS, but generally, if you can document that the money was paid on behalf of the JCE, you can still meet this requirement. So it's a complicated subject, but there are still options, uh, you know, in most cases. As we're going to talk about in, in part two of this series, um, when there is diversion of funds at the, at the JCE level or when there's fraud in the project, a lot of times the immigration service will look to the regional center and say, you are responsible for this because you let this happen. And uh, those types of activities that Dan's talking about can lead to attempts to terminate the regional center, which, as I said, is a discussion for part two of this series. So I think that's been a really good analysis of the uh, problems we see with, uh, with projects and some of our strategies and legal interpretations that we use uh, when a project's in trouble. I often uh, say that uh, we are the, uh, the fire people of the EB-5 industry. When there's fires, uh, people call on us, and it's our job to be creative and come up with solutions, uh, talking about what the law is, even if it's not necessarily what USCIS policy du jour is, and in most cases, convincing the USCIS that we're right and where we can't going to court, and going to court will be part three of this series. So, uh, thank you for your attention. Please give us a five-star rating and a review. It uh, uh, helps people find us. Uh, please send an email to podcast at classicolaw.com if you have any questions on this subject that you would like answered. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and WeChat. Sign up for our emails and for the latest alerts and blogs at classicolaw.com. Dan Lundy and Jessica Denisi, thank you so much for your time. I'm Ron Clasco. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit us at ClascoLaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at ClascoLaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.